Welcome to our new episode of the European Conversations podcast series from the European Movement in Scotland. I'm Kirsty Hughes. This week, I'm in conversation with Steve Micklewright, CEO of leading Scottish rewilding charity Trees for Life. Steve, thanks very much for doing this podcast with me today. It's great to be here in Dundragon and to see the amazing rewilding work you're doing. Can you start maybe by telling me what the core of your work at the moment here is on rewilding? Okay, so we're in the middle of Dundragon Estate, which is Trees for Life's owned estate here in the Scottish Highlands, 10,000 acres. And we've been looking after this land for the last 10 years, uh, sorry, 15 years actually now. And we've been going through the process of rewilding it, which is restoring nature, if you like. So restoring the wild Caledonian forest that should be here and restoring peat bogs. And then just recently, we've opened a rewilding centre where we're trying to encourage people to find out about rewilding and if you like, have greater contact with nature so they can kind of rewild themselves, get close, more, more in contact with wild nature. And initially, I, I suppose when people think of something like trees for life, they maybe have a, what I might call a, a kind of old fashioned or very basic yeah. idea of what this is about. You plant a tree that helps tackle climate change, it absorbs carbon, but you've actually got much bigger and more detailed ambitions. Yeah, so the idea of planting trees, planting trees is a really good thing because they help with nature, they bring back nature, they help with locking away carbon. But trees can actually grow themselves if you give them the chance. So what we're starting to move to here in Trees for Life is where there is a seed source out there and the trees can grow themselves, is we encourage that to happen because that way we get the natural wild trees back. Uh, and that's good because that's good for genetics, That's they're kind of pre-programmed to thrive in that sort of environment. And where there isn't any seed source, and a lot of the Scottish islands are very bare open landscapes that should have forest on them but don't, that's when we do tree planting to, to almost light the, the blue touch paper to enable the, the landscape to kind of wake up, if you like. So it's not a simple matter, simple matter of just grow a tree and plant it. It's working out what the landscape can do itself first and allowing that to happen. And then if that isn't possible, planting trees. And I think people sometimes think that if you're planting trees you're somehow trying to cover all of Scotland's mountains and, and glens in, in trees but actually the landscape that emerges from what you're doing is much more variegated than that isn't it? Yeah again so the Scottish Highlands are beautiful I mean if you come here you can't not be gobsmacked by this beautiful landscape but it isn't fully it doesn't have all the components that it should have in nature so what we should have here is a mosaic of different types of habitat you should have natural oak woods and pine woods and peatlands and heather moorland and wet places and bogs and high mountain areas which are almost bare all of that is the mosaic that wants to be here if we could help it to happen and help it to, to then start to look after itself so Forest restoration doesn't mean plant rows and rows of trees, it means helping to restore some of the components that are missing. And in this part of the world, it is very much that what we call Caledonian forest, that natural forest that was once here and wants to come back if we, if we could give it a chance. I've been lucky enough to spend the last couple of days walking around much of this area and through some of the forests mm. which are beautiful as we're at the start of spring. And I've been very struck amongst other things by the the bird song is just so much more than you normally hear, even in countryside. And the air is very fresh and the trees are often covered in moss and lichens yeah. and, and, and so on. But as well as the 
birds, what are all the other wildlife that I probably didn't see but are there? Okay, so we've been looking at um, Dundragon for the last 15 years and we found about 4,000 different species of plants, of insect, of little bugs and also some of the big things like golden eagles that have come back. So yeah, the things that you see like or hear like the bird song are just the tip of the iceberg of a functioning ecology. And in Glen Affric, where I think you were, you know, that's pretty close to what a restored landscape would look like in, in this part of Scotland, what a rewilded landscape would look like. And that's full of different sorts of trees. It's full of all sorts of bugs. Some of them are really rare, some of them are really common, like biting midges. Um, but also it's got that more visible kind of wildlife that's come back as well. So that's where we're aiming to get to. But nature needs to lead the way as to what actually does come back. And this isn't a landscape without people, is it? I, I was not only walking around that area, but on one of the on one of the gateways, there was a sign that said walkers welcome. So, so it's not a landscape without people. No, this isn't a densely populated part of the world and, and many parts of the Highlands are as poorly populated, if you like, as parts of Scandinavia. But underneath all of that, there are livelihoods still here and livelihoods that are thriving here. So in order to enable rewilding to happen, for example, we need to reduce deer numbers because deer eat trees and trees then can't grow. And we don't have any predators here. So in order to do that, we need deer stalkers working on the land helping to manage the deer numbers down. So that's a natural nature-based livelihood that we have. Here at the Rewilding Centre uh, and at Dundragon, when we first bought the estate, there was just one person working here. Now there are 28. So it, when you wake up a landscape, you wake up the livelihoods that go with it as well. And I think we're demonstrating that here and that's starting to be visible in Glen Africa as well, where people are visiting, people are enjoying that landscape, they're rewilding themselves and they are spending money in the community which is keeping the schools open and stuff like that so rewilding helps all these different things that, that people need so it it helps create more biodiversity but it's actually helping our society and our social systems as well yeah uh, there's been some research by rewilding britain which are one of our partner organizations they've looked at what happens when land moves from traditional management to rewilding and there's generally at least a 50 percent increase in jobs and if it's an NGO running it, there's usually a massive increase in the number of volunteers. And as well, people like to come to these places and then they enrich their own lives by just experiencing wild nature. So people benefit as well. Yeah. And a lot of your work and the different things you're doing, you do in partnership with, with other groups. Mm. You've got to talk to people in the community and to landowners and, and so forth. But one of the big things you're doing is you're part of a European network called rewilding Europe. So could you tell me something about that and what you're doing with them? Yeah, so we are, we, we have a landscape that we call Africa Highlands and that's 500,000 acres, the size of a small country that we're seeking to re rewild over the next 30 years. And that's been recognised by our friends at rewilding Europe as one of 10 landscapes across the European continent that are kind of exemplars of rewilding. So there are all these wonderful places like the Oder, Oder Den Delta in Germany, uh, like the Carpathian Mountains in Romania, the Apennines in, in Italy, ten other nine other landscapes where also rewilding is starting to take off. And it gives me goosebumps thinking about this because I, nature knows no boundaries and nor should we. So we work really closely with our European colleagues because they are doing things that we can translate to Scotland 
and we're doing things that they can translate to their European landscape as well. And it's just wonderful to feel part of a, a European-wide movement that's making change happen. And some people listening to this will no doubt be thinking, what about Brexit? So what we're hearing from this is Brexit didn't stop you being in or continuing in this network. It's nature knows no boundaries and this network doesn't have a boundary. It's not an EU as such network, it's a European network. And yes, and, and another country that has a, a rewilding landscape is, is the Ukraine. So uh, there is another landscape, landscape outside of the EU boundary, which is part of the rewilding Europe network as well. So, so Brexit has caused some problems for us, of course, like many other people, but it hasn't stopped us working with European partners and it hasn't stopped us benefiting from European funding to make things happen. So Rewilding Europe have helped us to raise funds through their efforts to, ha to help African Highlands happen. So despite Brexit, we're still working really closely with people that we should be in Europe. Which is brilliant, but just on some of the problems it's caused, is that is that in terms of availability of people coming here or what sort of problems has it caused? So the main problem it will cause is funding. So the rewilding centre that we have here received over a million pounds worth of funding through Nature Scott, which is the, gov the Scottish Government's Nature Conservation Agency, which is European Development Fund money. That goes, we are one of the last beneficiaries of that fund in Scotland. We won't have that anymore. So if somebody else wants to do rewilding centre, a really important source of European funding for a, uh, a, a, a marginal area, if you like, in, in, in the EU has gone. Uh, and so that's the hardest thing. We can't apply for life funding, which is a major pot of European money that could have helped with reintroducing species, could have helped with the Caledonian pine woods because they're a unique habitat to the world and the EU recognised that. So that funding stream has gone. And yeah, there is an issue over labour as well. We are, we are running a, hosp a hospitality venue here in the Scottish Highlands, and there are many European friends that would have loved to work here. Now they can't. It's a, it's a shocking and depressing story, isn't it? But on, on the other hand, the fact that you're nonetheless part of the Rewilding Europe network and group is, is something more positive. On, on that more positive side of it, can you give some examples of one or two things you've maybe learned from your other partners in, as you say, Ukraine, Portugal, all across Europe, or that they've come here and said, oh, now we've really learned this from you? Well, it's interesting, interesting you say that. After you finish your time here, a whole group of people are coming over from, from rewilding Europe and now other different landscapes to have their annual meeting around communications. And what we've learned about from rewilding Europe is that storytelling is what really turns people on to rewilding. So there are some wonderful landscapes where people are telling the stories of families that were no longer living in parts of Portugal, but rewilding Portugal have established the landscape and people are coming back and doing um, artisan farming, tourism, nature-based business. And we want to learn from that here in the Highlands of Scotland because we know a lot of young people that are brought up in this part of the world really don't want to do the sort of hard work, getting up at 4am in the cold to go out deer stalking, for example. But there are other nature-based businesses that we can develop and we want to learn from our kind of partners about how they've gone about that. We won't be able to grow olives here, for example, but you know there are other things we can do. Yeah. It sounds like a very rich process and, mm. and dialogue and it's certainly in that sense at least, obviously we're facing such a huge biodiversity and climate mm crisis but it seems to be quite a positive moment for rewilding the, the word somehow has taken off in the last couple of years it's intrigued people it's interested 
people, it's in, in the media more, I think. But on, on the other hand, you've got this big 30-year yeah. Africa Islands project, which is multidimensional and huge chunk of land. How do you go about bringing different interest groups, communities, stakeholders, that terrible word, I always think. Yeah. So how do you bring them all on board? You can't, storytelling, I guess, is part of it, but it's not just <clears throat> overnight, is it? Well, for us with Africa Highlands, the start of the process is talking to the landowners. If we are unable to onboard landowners with the idea of rewilding, we can't do very much for communities, we can't do very much for nature's recovery because the land is, uh, is, is mainly in private ownership and, and some of it is publicly owned as well. So the first part of the process is to talk with landowners, understand where they are, look at the rewilding potential of their land and also look at the potential benefits to them in terms of their bottom line, what actually rewilding can deliver in terms of investment from others because it locks away carbon, it helps nature. So once you've onboarded the landowning community, and we are well on our way to, to doing that, then we need to start to think about and what are the nature-based businesses that can start to develop in this landscape? What is it that the community can benefit from? And how can we have more dialogue with the community around that? And we're just starting that process. So we have a farming cluster where people are looking at how I can, how they can make sustainable farming decisions on the land that they own. And we're starting to speak to young people, people who are 18 to 30 in this landscape and saying to them, what do you want this landscape to deliver for you in the future? Because when 30 years is up, if you like, and we think that the landscape is recovered, I'm afraid I won't be here because I'm too old. But those guys and girls, those people will. So what is it they need in order to sustain themselves within an environment like this? That's the process. It's, it's about not just nature coming back slowly, and gradually it's also about people changing and, and figuring out how they can sustain a, a modern life in this landscape. How important is it to also take that communication and stories out to, to people who, who are living in cities? You know, they're not living here, they may visit here, yeah. but they're not living here or most of them not thinking about coming back here if this is where they're from and it's maybe in cities that in so many ways we've become most disconnected from nature but is that part of what you do or is that you know that has to be someone else has to do that bit well i suppose from from our point of view the rewilding center is is how we're trying to to tackle that so the thing for me and i came to scotland seven years ago and i was really interested in rewilding and i'm an ecologist by background so i knew something needed to happen but i was as blown away as anybody by how beautiful the this landscape is and it was only when that ecological blindness to what it really is started to lift our kind of now i see the landscape oh that looks really nice but actually that could have a lot of different mosaic of habitats on it and much more wildlife than it currently has and more people living in it and i suppose the rewilding center is our way of trying to enable people to experience rewilding and its benefits and kind of hopefully open their eyes to the fact that we live in a really nature depleted country whether you're in glasgow or edinburgh or out here in glen in, in glen morriston nature is depleted and in order for us to survive we need to do something about that how do you deal with the different responses to change some people come on board and say that's great and others are slower and others oppose what's probably a bit more complicated than just that trio of responses but what's your approach so I think a good example of that is how we've approached the idea of reintroducing beavers to Glen Affric. So Glen Affric, we know could, beavers could thrive there. Uh, there is a community in Glen Affric, a place called Canic, 
and there are a number of people there that strongly support the idea of beavers coming back. There are a number of people who feel their interests, including their land, may suffer as a result of beavers being reintroduced. So what we have done, I think, really well in this case, although not everybody may agree with us, is we've listened. So we have listened to people's concerns about possible flooding, about possible damage to people's homes, and whether or not that is likely to happen, we have listened and we have said, okay, we will, we will look to reintroduce beavers in such a way that those likely problems won't happen very quickly because we are, we are, there are some natural barriers that will prevent their dispersal to those areas. Um, so we've tried to listen, we've tried to understand, and then we've, we've also said that we will monitor those beavers and we will also do some further studies about whether these fears of flooding uh, by, caused by beavers building dams are likely. And if they are, we will, we will absolutely be committed to this for the long term. And if there are ever problems, we will, we will step in and we will try to make sure that we can help to deal with those. So we've listened, and I think listening is something that we're not so good at these days with social media and all these other things. People don't listen anymore. And I hope the people that are worried in Glen Affric feel they've been listened to. At the end of the day, we want to reintroduce beavers to that landscape, but we don't want anybody's home to be flooded. We don't want anybody to lose out as a result of this. The research that we are aware of shows that that shouldn't happen, but there's a chance that there could be problems. So we have to make sure that those people feel that they have been listened to and that something will be done if the worst happens and I hope we're getting there with that. Other people just don't like any change at all and want to keep this landscape like a listed building. Listed buildings if they're not cared for fall down. This landscape needs care, it needs change in order for it to, to, to thrive. But many people just don't believe that change is needed and I'm afraid we'll never be able to convince them otherwise I, I fear. So. Sometimes you just have to accept that, that you're not going to uh, uh, persuade people of your arguments and at, at least agree to disagree. Yeah. So you're going to bring most people with you with different conversations and dialogues and suggestions, but in the end you're never going to bring 100% of people and we live in a democracy and that's normal in fact. Yeah, it? and that's, that is normal and that's fine, isn't it? We, you can agree to disagree, not every landowner has to come on board of Africa Highlands, not every member of the community may feel that a thriving repopulated area is what they want they may have come here for absolute complete isolation those are all absolutely valid views and opinions but what we are trying to achieve is a landscape that is delivering benefits for many many more people and many many more creatures if you like and that does require change and what you're describing is a, is a process that's quite intensive it takes time and all your work on the landscape and the natural processes mm. take time, though I, I think in some ways, you know, when you read and watch stories of landscape renewal, you see things, some things can happen extremely mm. fast, but you must on the one hand have to have a lot of patience for this work, and on the other hand, there's a sense of urgency. We're facing a climate and a biodiversity crisis, so can we act fast enough? We can only act where we can act. So Trees for Life and the Africa Highlands Initiative has a limited number of tools. We have, I think, persuasive ideas and arguments. We have a sense of we want to listen and we want to convene people to enable change to happen. But all of it is voluntary. We have no powers. We just have ideas and we just have a sense that we can together make something really special happen here. 
other people do have powers and seem quite afraid to use them quite often or quite afraid to say actually the change is so urgent that we need to actually tell what tell people what needs to happen sometimes and that for me is the role of government good government is about listening to its people understanding their needs but also being really clear sometimes that some things just have to happen if we're going to survive and we're going to prosper and that's the role of government that's not our job because we don't have any of that power and we're not the right people to do that but good government good government in scotland would mean actually saying sometimes we have to make change happen more quickly because if we don't we'll be in a worse situation in a few years time than we even are now and if you were in government for a day or you could tell the scottish government let's say what to do for one big policy change for rewilding in scotland what what would you put first i think if I, there was one thing i would change it would be around uh, the idea of a new national park in scotland so scotland is on the journey to de designating one new at least one new national park by the end of this parliament 2026 i would want that national park to be a rewilding national park where nature recovery is the number one priority. It doesn't mean that it can't do things for climate, of course it can. It doesn't mean that there won't be more jobs, more livelihoods for people, of course there will. It doesn't mean it won't be a wonderful landscape to visit, of course it will. But nature recovery, rewilding at the heart of it, will deliver all of that for us. So that, that's the one significant change I would bring in. If policies go in the right direction, looking forward in the next 10 years, which is a very yeah. big if, what's realistic or realistic and ambitious for what you'd like the Scottish Highlands to look like in 10 years, not just your bit of it? In 10 years, and we're already seeing this in other uh, kind of estates that are ahead of us, we, are, we would start to see that mosaic of different habitats appearing. We'd start to see some trees popping above the heather moorlands that covers this landscape. We'd start to see some of the wildlife coming back. For me, a really good indicator is a bird called the blue throat. So we do a lot of work in terms of restoring the, the natural woodland that should be above the tree line, little tiny wee trees that get to barely a metre. That's what you have in Norway right now. If that habitat comes back in, in significant proportion, a bird called the blue throat that visits Scotland from Norway would start to nest here. That would be rewilding, that would be nature taking care of itself. And you'd, you'd want to see that across, I mean, in 10 years you can't do 50% of the land, presumably, but what, could you do 50%? Could you do 20%? I well, the, the, tar the target is 30% of uh, Scotland, land and sea, uh, restoring, not being protected. Protection just means you put a, a fence around it and you allow it to continue mm. to decline. Restoring it, 30% restoration, and that's perfectly possible. I mean, people who are better data analysts of me have said, you know, it's easy, it's relatively easy find 30% of Scotland that could be rewilded. It's the question of do we want to do that? Do we have the will to make that change happen? That's, that's, that's the core of what needs to happen in Scotland. That's the big question, isn't it? Do, we want, do we want to do it or do we just want to let things quietly wither away? Steve McElroy, thanks very much for talking to us today and we hope that vision for the next 10 years is the one that comes through. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> There we must leave this conversation for now. I'm Kirsty Hughes. I was in conversation with Steve Micklewright of Trees for Life about rewilding the Scottish Highlands.